Governor Tom Wolf is renewing his push for a severance tax on the Marcellus shale industry. But how likely is that to actually pass? We're going to take a closer look at the gas industry's political influence. And later in the show, we'll hear from Dickinson College's interim president about the effects of Trump's immigration order. But right now, I'm joined in the studio by State Representative Greg Vitale, a Democrat from Delaware County. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for being here. Uh, good morning, Marie. Thanks for having me. Well, we invited you in today because you are preparing to come out with a report tomorrow about all the money that the Marcellus shale industry spends in Harrisburg and what kind of policy implications that has. Um, so let's let's start off. What? Why did you do this report? What, what were you looking for here? Well, first of all, just to give credit to Common Cause and the uh, conservation voters of PA, because we built on a lot of good research they did. But um, there is a frustration uh, among people who care about the environment in Harrisburg. Uh, the way the Marcellus drilling industry and their money really influences the legislature. You talked about uh, the severance tax. Governor Indell first proposed that in 2009, and it's been introduced year after year. And in my view, it's the influence of the uh, money of the Marcellus drilling industry, their, their phalanx of lobbyists, the uh, large amounts of campaign contributions uh, they give. I mean, you look at the uh, conventional drilling regulations, very common sense drilling regulations protect public health, safety, the environment, five years in the making, overwhelming public support uh, endorsed by IRC, and uh, they have been beaten back year after year. And just so to explain to people, those are the conventional drilling regulations, not the unconventional or Marcellus yeah. shale. Those, those regulations did move forward this fall. They moved forward, but again, the Marcellus coalition went to court and put a stay on some of them. So so only a small fraction of, of these very basic common regulations that keep things like well pads away from you know, sc uh, schools and playgrounds and water supplies uh, are in, in place. So, so you have this um, enormous uh, influence of the uh, drilling industry on the legislature. And it's something you know. I mean, if you just work in the Capitol, you know, because you see these lobbyists uh, in, in the hallways. You have an environmental committee meeting. You see them packing the back. Uh, their, their presence is obvious. But what we tried to do with this report was just quantify it, just quantify it and, and try to sort of it to, to a presentation that the public, the media uh, could understand. Okay, so you're releasing this report tomorrow. It's called Marcellus Money and the Pennsylvania Legislature. And as you mentioned, you built off the work of Common Cause Pennsylvania, yeah. which I know they found that the industry spent about uh, close to $60 million lobbying since 2009. Um, but this report really takes a look at the year 2016. So what, what did you find? Right. Uh, we, we looked, again, we looked at campaign um, expense reports. We looked at lobbying reports. We looked at the statements of financial interest from legislatures. In, in the, on the lobbying realm, we found um, they employ 203 lobbyists. And ironically, that's one for each state house member. That, that's a huge amount of lobbyists. Uh, they um, uh, spend enormous amounts of, of money on lobbying. I mean, just the Marcellus Coalition had been spending um, close to a million dollars, about uh, 930000 940000 per quarter uh, on on lobbying. And But I think probably the... Uh, um, <clears throat> 
as I talk to lobbyists who are friends, uh, you know, probably more important than the lobbying resources is, is simply just the campaign contributions, the money that that um, ma mainly those who are in a position to control legislation, the amount of money those those legislators receive. I want to ask you something, too, about the gifts that legislators can receive, because in Pennsylvania, legislators are allowed to, uh, you know, receive gifts uh, up to, I, I believe you don't, you don't have to report the gift if it's under $250,000, well, yeah, I'm sorry, $250 or uh Lodging, yeah. hospitality, and transportation, if it's under $650, you yeah. don't even have to report that. Per, in the aggregate, per source. So, okay. I mean, the interesting thing was, I mean, if you look at the amount of money that uh, is spent on, on lobbying and gifts, and then you look at the lobbying reports, they don't show um, a single legislator's name. They don't show a um, single bill number. I mean, these, these reports are just... Um, a million, uh, a report that disperses nine hundred thousand dollars is three pages long and compa uh, contains very little information. So what the industry reports we spent, you know, X number of dollars on lobbying, and the, but you said going through the ethics statements of legislators, they don't necessarily have to report things that they took. So those reports don't necessarily square. It most of it is just hidden under these threshold reports. Requirements. I mean, we looked at these um, 253 statements, you know, the, the, the 203 House members and, and, and 50 um, senators, and um, only, only five ended up reporting gifts from the gas industry, and, and they weren't the people you would think who would, and they were sometimes relatively benign things. So the, the, the problem is all of the uh, whining and dining is, is under the radar because we have a very ineffective lobbying law. We have a very, it, it simply creates this appearance of regulation when in fact um, uh, the lobbying law we passed in 2006 has just failed to change the culture in Harrisburg. Right. So if I'm a legislator, I could get a trip away for the weekend that costs $649 and I would never have to report that. Yes. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, see, see I think the problem is, and, and first of all, let me say this. Lobbyists have an important place in our system. They should be, in a perfect world, providers of information. They have a constitutional right. Everyone has a constitutional right to petition their government. They should be providers of information, but not our friends. And I think the strategy lobbyists use by whining and dining and taking us to the ballgame and sword, they want to become our friends because, you know, when they need a vote on an amendment, you know, can you give me this? Because, you know, we're friends and friends help friends. So that's sort of the culture that a good lobbying law would break. And a good lobbying law would break that by either banning gifts, which, which they absolutely should ban gifts, or first penny disclosure, so all these gifts are seen. And, and, but if constituents could see information like my legislator got this amount of money from this lobbyist for this bill, they said, you know, what, you know that bill didn't seem like a good idea, but you voted for it, and you did get this money from, I mean, what's that all about? You know, it, that would shape conduct. Right now, there's not nearly enough information to shape conduct. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with State Representative Greg Vitale, a Democrat from Delaware County, and he's discussing the political influence the 
Marcellus Shale Natural Gas Industry has in Harrisburg. So, um, Greg, I want to ask you, what did you find in terms of who are some of the top contributors and who are some of the top receivers of either yeah. lobbying or, or campaign finance? Yeah, not to be, you know, not to be um, partisan, but frankly, most of the money went to Republicans, mostly leaders and the campaign committees, and um, and 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 the. Um, Environmental Committee chairman. I mean, because the, the the money went to people who were in a position to move legislation, uh, because you know, frankly, you know, that's they expect a return from their investment. That's and that's the problem. Um, and I feel sorry for you know people like you know. Uh, Representative Everett has this royalty protection bill. You know that that protects landowners who lease to gas industry uh, companies um, and, and end up getting negative royalty checks or minuscule royalty checks. And when those people come to Harrisburg and, and, and just say, we're so hopeful this term, we're going to get that bill passed and get our money. It's like I said, don't you realize what you're up against, the, the influence of, of, of the money of the drilling industry? I mean, that's the problem. It, it, it's not a level playing field. So what are you mentioned? You think this has been held up? Uh, th this lobbying and, and money has held up the severance tax. You think it's held up royalty reform, uh, regulations around drilling. Uh, what else? What other policy outcomes do you see from all the money that's being spent? Yeah, I mean, on the positive side, I mean, just trying to get uh, in, expand renewable energy. You know, the alternative energy portfolio standard would be a good way to require you know utility companies, electric distribution companies like PPNL and PICO to require them to um, use more renewable energy. But that is just beaten back term after term. I'd be afraid to run an APS bill uh, this term for fear that it would just be eliminated. You know, so so it, it's not even you know, the negative things. It's, it's preventing the positive things. Like, like we, as a state, are very negligent in doing things to address climate change. You, know, you saw that with the um, the Pam Snyder bill and uh, that it really extended the um, requirements for the state implementation plan. God knows where that issue was with Donald Trump. But I mean, just doing positive things like dealing with climate change, expanding renewables, uh, uh, fostering um, uh, energy uh, conservation, it, you know, when those interests bear down on a bill, uh, it's very difficult to get done. They, they just seem to win. And, and, the, and, the, and, and one point to be made here is we actually had two um, minor environmental victories this year. We beat back the HANA bill that was a bad bill with regard to plastic bags, and we beat back the Ellis bill, which was a bill that, that uh, would have fostered commercial development in state parks. And, w and when you look at why we were able to win, it was because the lobbyists weren't engaged in those issues. You know, when they engage, it's really impossible uh, for the environmentalists to, to win. So, I mean, that was sort of part of the frustration that caused me to start, um, you know, just to start working on this and trying to quantify this and let people know really uh, why things are the way they are in Harrisburg. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with Representative Greg Vitale, a Democrat from Delaware County, about the political influence of the Marcellus shale industry. We welcome your questions and comments. Call us at one 800 
729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Um, Greg, I want to ask you, so aside from enacting a gift ban, what other kind of reforms would you like to see happen? And are they going to happen? Because it's yeah, know, a perennial it's very issue. Here. Well, well here, here's the low-hanging fruit. I mean, when we did this, uh, did all this search, and I had a staffer from my office, Bobby did and all did the lion's share of it. Um, the state's uh, searching capacity is just really archaic. You know, if you wanted to pick a legislator and find out how many contributions he got from a given gas company over the five past election cycles, you'd have to go for like 30 different reports. You can't do cross-report searches. And so that And the technology is very outdated. And we actually sat down with the Department of State on Monday on this point. But I think the low-hanging fruit, of, if, if Governor Wolf wants to have a uh, political reform plank in his program, I think the first thing he could do would be to uh, just modernize the, the search capabilities. Yeah, because, you know, when you're looking up uh, federal data on yeah. candidates, it's really easy to download right. an ex Excel spreadsheet. But, um, yeah, in Pennsylvania, it's just a nightmare to try to look through that website. So I know the Wolf administration has done other sort of technology things like creating online voter registration, and, and they seem interested in this topic. But I mean, what did they say to you? Because that, that website is pretty un unusable, really. Yeah, we met with Jonathan Marks and uh, Deputy Secretary, Deputy Secretary Torres on Monday, and they actually did say, well, we have a list of suggested improvements, and they actually you know, gave me a copy of the, 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 the list. So they, they kind of are aware of the problem. They haven't really pulled the trigger on doing anything, but I think it would be a, uh, um, you know, a, a wonderful thing if they would move uh, forward on that, because you're right. I mean, because I think, I think what you want to do is... Uh, have reporters, as legislators take votes, do real quick searches on money and votes and, and relationships. So that could be included in the story of you know, why someone might have voted against the conventional drilling regs or against the severance tax and do a quick search of money they may have gotten from Chesapeake or, or EQT or range resources. But if, if it's just a slow, laborious process, it just sort of kind of stifles that sort of good investigative reporting. So turning to another topic here, uh, perhaps one of the reasons you, you are very outspoken and come, you know, produce a report like this is because you're, you're sort of a, a political outsider here. You're, you're uh, I, I think that's fair to say you're, yeah, you're not, I think an, that's fair. You're not yeah. an insider and, yeah. and you're very uh, you speak your mind on the House floor a lot. But one of the things that happened to you earlier this year was you lost your uh, committee assignment, which yeah. you were the minority chair of the House and Environmental Resources and Energy Committee. Um, so talk about do you really care a lot about the environment. I do. Um, so what happened there? Why did you lose that uh, position? Yeah, I didn't. I, I, I lost the chairmanship, and I've been on that committee for 24 years, and um, I wasn't even allowed back on the committee. I think <clears throat> what happened was uh, on swearing-in day, at the last minute, they changed the House rules to really... Um, reduce a waiting requirement for legislators and the public to view bills and also reduce the amount of debate available. I know exactly what's going to happen because uh, budget season, they're going to run a, a fiscal code bill that's going to do very nasty things as far as the environment goes. Wait, so let me stop. <clears throat> what's the fiscal code? Because I've, I've heard it described uh, as the legislative junk drawer. What, is, what does that do? It's kind uh, of filled with all kinds of stuff. It is. It's a, compa a companion bill for the, uh, the, the budget, and, and it's one of maybe five budget bills that move through 
through at the same time, but it has become this catch-all. Maybe might run about 200 pages, but they've put things in there like canceling the conventional drilling regulations and shifting money from renewable sources to gas development and uh, the climate change delay stuff. But but what this rule change would do would be to sort of, instead of giving us 24 hours to look at it, it would shorten it to six hours. And instead of giving us a lot of debate on it, it would really shorten that debate. And I know exactly what's going to happen next this June. They're just going to put the bad stuff in that bill and cram it by us before we even realize what's in it. So that's why I got up on the House floor on on January 3rd and really tried to stop this process. But I don't think that those in leadership like uh, when rank-and-file members publicly disagreed with them. And it wasn't just this. I mean, it's just... this was the last in a series of things. I think when you become very aggressive in opposing canceling the conventional drilling regulations, you may have House members, even Democrats from the Southwest who just complain to leadership and uh, things like that. I mean, I think I, I tend to do this job very aggressively, and I think you get some complaints when you do that. Yeah, I want to ask you about <clears throat> that because you have been in the legislature for a very long time, and you certainly ruffled feathers on both sides of the aisle with some of the things you've said over the years. Um, what is that like? I mean, do you feel like you're being effective when um, you are positioning yourself as the perpetual outsider? Well, uh, my feeling is that I play a role. I don't think the House should have 203 people like me, but I think a a little sprinkling is helpful to the process. I do think it is important to have someone on the inside who can just describe really what's happening. And and the price you pay for being outspoken is the benefit you get is you can explain to the public, you can sort of shine light on things, you can slow stuff down and occasionally get lucky and and stop a couple of things, which we did last term. But the price you pay is, you know, you're not going to be the person who gets bills passed. It's just simply a role you you choose knowing the consequences you're going to pay. So you were offered a different assignment on the state government committee. You, you turned that down, correct? I, I did. I mean, my, my feeling is uh, I'm up here. My primary mission is to be an advocate for environmental policy. I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to get up to speed on the issue. I know the issue. The issue needs advocates. And um, yeah, no, I didn't want to really distract from that. And uh, what I plan to do moving forward is to just stay as active on the environmental issues as, as I have been in the past. My my platform's different. In addition to taking me off the uh, environmental chairmanship, they took me off the Environmental Quality Board and, and wouldn't let me on the committee. So it's just... Didn't you say they came to your office kind of uh, right, just right. to like took a computer yeah. without uh, well, It was like the same something. day. I mean, I, I the, the day I was removed from the committee, you know, the uh, it was the, the, the minority leader, you know, just called me a half hour and said, you're all, you're going to, we're moving you. And then like, uh, and that was like 12 noon, two o'clock in the afternoon as people were in my office pulling my executive director's computer and he was out of there. And I was like, you know, they moved, changed. That phone line was out of there. It was just, you know, it's just the way sometimes hardball politics works. I will say I called them and they said this was not a punishment for you. So um, <laughs> they, they said they knew that right. you were not happy with this. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's funny because I was reading a Daily Times article and one of one of the uh, spokesmen, I think Bill Patton, said, not a punishment. In fact, um, the, the Democratic leader likes Greg's style and uh, like, like he's... <laughs> 
encouraging me to do more. It was just very funny, very funny. Um, well, looking ahead to the, the year, uh, Governor Wolf gave his budget proposal. Uh, it was addressed to the legislature on Tuesday. And, um, you know, the big the headline is sort of like he's asking for this gas severance tax yet again. He, uh, the administration is projecting it could bring in close to $300 million. Um, but um, what are some of the other things in the budget that around the environment and, and energy issues that you, you noticed? Well, first of all, I, I fully support Governor Wolf, and I think it would be an absolute disaster if someone like uh, Senator Wagner uh, became governor from the perspective of, of environmental protection. He's he's given a tough role because you know they're not giving him you know the resources he needs like an increase in the PIT to, to do his job and as a result he has to propose a budget that's really bad bad for the environment I'm sure if it were he'd like to propose a better budget but the reality is the Department of Environmental Protection which has been flat line, was flatlined this year and that has been decimated over time. That had about 3,000 employees in 2002. We're down to about 2,400 now. Um, the uh, Department of Conservation and Natural Resources also had a slight loss, and they're taking money from the oil and gas lease fund again, $65 million for general government operations. Yeah, can operation. you explain what that is? What is that fund? Back in 1956, this was set up to be a repository for revenues from developing state park and forest land. Like if you timber on state park and forest land, the revenue goes to this fund. If you uh, have oil, gas, it goes into this fund. And that fund's supposed to be used for conservation purposes to put back into the public lands to compensate for what was taken out. But in recent years, this has kind of become a kind of a cash cow. Rather than doing the right thing by raising conventional re revenue sources like the personal income tax or the sales tax or corporate taxes, they've been raiding these funds. So, so um, <clears throat> we, th this, they had done that in years past. In fact, they didn't do it last year because they had drained it dry. Uh, but more money accumulated this year. So they're, they're taking $65 million from the oil and gas lease fund for general go uh, government operations uh, for state parks and forests. So, again, it's, 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 uh, I don't fault. I don't fault Governor Wolf because he, I mean, what's he going to do? They're not giving him the money to, to work. But, I mean, environmentalists and people need to know this is just a not a good budget uh, for the environment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick, sitting in for Scott Lamar. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. I'm State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick sitting in today for Scott Lamar. And we're talking with State Representative Greg Vitale, a Democrat of Delaware County, about the political influence of the state's Marcellus Shale industry on Harrisburg and about the governor's budget proposal and what that means for the environment. Um, so, Greg, I just want to ask you, too, they said they have not implemented a hiring freeze, but they're certainly trying to control the staffing levels at, uh, across state agencies agencies uh, to try to try to help with this huge budget uh, hole we have. So what does that mean for the environment? I mean, where is, uh, where is, for example, the Department of Environmental Protection in terms of staffing levels now? Yeah, I mean, they're really grossly understaffed. I mean, uh, the 
they just got a warning. The DEP just got a warning on December 30th from the Environmental Protection Agency that said they do not have sufficient staffing to enforce uh, uh, safe drinking water standards. I mean, that's serious stuff. They don't have resources to do that. Uh, we have obligations to clean up the Chesapeake Bay. We don't have staffing to do that. You know, even even getting stream redesignations to protect them. We have there's a four-year backlog. I mean, and as I go around the state, I and I and I, you know, visit drilling pads and 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 just talk with rank and file DEP people. They all say, you know, it's the story's the same. We're just spread way too thin, and and uh, so so and the challenges of the agency with the onset of Marcellus drilling are even greater because you know this this gas drilling boom really has has has. You know, put put a threat to the environment as far as our water and our, our air and our land and so forth. So, the challenges increase, but the resources have decreased, and uh, so we're really not. And and if you talk you know, with former DEP people like John Quigley or John Hanger, I mean, they they just say, "Listen, we've been cut beyond the bone. We're we're into muscles and veins." And, and I mean, the people on the inside. Um, will tell you that the former former employees and even current employees, it's it's just an agency that doesn't have the resources to carry out its mission. I know uh, former DEP Secretary David Hess, who uh, right. was, was in the Ridge administration, right. he uh, he has a blog and, and put up a, a headline that said, welcome to 1994, because uh, these are the levels of funding and, and staffing we have now in 2017. He used the word horrendous in, in his <laughs> in his blog, and, he, and that's a Republican who... Uh, um, yeah, it's really uh, – I think people – there's a consequence. If you want to be a conservative and say no new taxes ever, this is this is what you get. You get things like that and you get higher local property taxes and things like that. How do you think we got here? Because the environment didn't used to be such a partisan thing. It's seemingly now it's, you know, the, the territory of liberals and Democrats. But it certainly it, – it wasn't always like that, was it? Yeah, it, it's happened gradually over time. I think that 2010 election um, got us a much more conservative legislature. Moderate Republicans were replaced by conservative Republicans, and and Democrats were defeated uh, by other Republicans. I think that I look at that as as this, uh, an election that just got us. In. And then with redistricting and and the, the problems there, that in a sense solidified uh, some of the uh, um, minority. The, the Democrats are in. But it's not just a Democrat-Republican thing, to be clear. For example, in suburban Philadelphia, you might get a better environmental vote out of a, a Republican in Bucks, Chester, Montgomery, Delaware, and then you get some South Southwestern Dems. I mean, they just won't won't give you a, a good vote on renewable energy or climate change or anything because they're very much aligned with the coal and gas people. So it's not perfectly along party lines. And I think the lesson for people is you just got to really look at individual legislators and, and how they're voting. And final question here for you. I know it's hard to say what's going to happen at the federal level with uh, Donald Trump's administration, but they've said they really want to curtail uh, what the EPA does. And I know that the state really does receive a lot of federal uh, federal money uh, from the EPA. So how, how is that going to play out if, if the state's cutting uh, its funding to DEP and, and the oh. feds cut back too? It's it's not going to be helpful. I just think the next four years we just have to really take it day by day, wait it out, and just hope for hope for better times. I think we just have to resist at every point and just just do the best we can. We've gotten through a, a bad president before, and we'll do it again. 
All right. Thanks so much, uh, Representative Greg Vitale, Democrat from Delaware County. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick, sitting in for Scott Lamar. Today we're discussing President Donald Trump's immigration order and how that affects colleges and universities. I'm joined on the phone by Dickinson College's pres- interim president, Neil Weissman. Uh, we welcome your questions and comments. Call us at 1-800-729-7532. Uh, good morning, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, yeah, I want to talk uh, about what are Dickinson's international ties, because um, you wrote a letter recently about uh, President Trump's immigration order and and just your position on it. So so talk a little bit about that. What is your feeling around it? Okay, well, uh, two things. As far as Dickinson's international ties are concerned, we consider global education a very distinctive element of uh, what we do here. Uh, About two-thirds of our students study abroad. We run 15 international sites of our own, and about 10% of our student body here on campus is international. So we have a very strong vested interest uh, in the free flow of ideas and people across borders. As far as uh, our sense of the um, president's executive order, um, it's disturbing to us. It's disturbing because it does affect a small number of our community directly. In other words, we have a handful of students who would be potentially affected. It uh, has troubled the broader international student community here on campus, Um, not just the executive order, but also some of the America First rhetoric that has come around it uh, has made them feel uh, unwelcome, and uh, they were pleased when the college expressed its support of them. And then finally, uh, it also, um, the executive ban, and again, more importantly, the uh, language and rhetoric that comes around it, uh, really threatens the flow of international students and scholars uh, from abroad to the United States and to places like Dickinson, uh, and that's concerning. So you're saying if a student, an international student is thinking about where they might want to go, they might say, hey, I might I might go to Canada this year or next year instead of coming to the United States because of what's going on? Sure. Uh, we have had a few, uh, I would emphasize thus far, a few students from abroad withdraw applications uh, as a consequence of some of the language uh, that's coming from Washington. I've also had uh, college counselors report uh, more directly that um, They understand some students are being advised that if they're coming to Pennsylvania, it should only be uh, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh uh, because of the uh, reception that they're likely to receive elsewhere in Pennsylvania. So those kinds of things are concerning. Now, I would emphasize that so far it's it's not a major movement. Um, we We don't know how far it might go and the degree to which it might depress international applications and enrollments, but uh, we're worried about it. What is the mood on campus since, you know, this has just been such a highly charged uh, political year? Uh, what what have you been hearing or seeing from students? Have you had any, uh, you know, unpleasant incidents? Well, there certainly has been upset uh, on campus, um, not just among students, but uh, this was a hotly contested election, people on both sides felt very strongly about it, and so um, there has been debate and some of it highly emotional on campus. I think um, so far, 
it's mostly been uh, constructive and civil. Uh, I uh, would note that just yesterday the Dickinson Student Senate, joined by our college Democrats, our college Republicans, and uh, uh, Student Liberation Movement, which is a student group uh, that uh, supports diversity and inclusion, they all did a joint resolution encouraging civil debate and conversation. So uh, it's, um, we've worked through it reasonably well, but certainly there are very strong feelings. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with Dickinson College's interim president, Neil Weissman, about Trump's immigration order and how that affects higher education. We welcome your questions and comments. You can call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Neil, I want to ask you, we've heard a lot about sanctuary cities uh, and you know funding being cut to those, but what, what are sanctuary campuses and, and what's Dickinson's position there? Well, that's a very interesting question, and, and uh, the term sanctuary campus is very unclear. Uh, it's being used in a number of different places in very different ways, and that is one reason that um, we actually are not declaring Dickinson a sanctuary campus. I mean, there are things that we are doing to support our international students. Uh, we've reached out to them uh, to offer them uh, counseling and advice. We uh, do not consider international status or uh, whether they're uh, under the DREAMer Act, DACA status, in making initial decisions about admissions. Uh, we are uh, emphasizing that the college uh, is a non-discrimination place. So we are reaching out to them, but we are not declaring Dickinson a sanctuary campus. Partly, as I just said, because the term is very unclear and frankly, it tends to promise more than we can deliver. In other words, uh, to the best of our understanding, college campuses cannot be free of the law. We have to do what is lawful. And using the term sanctuary campus suggests that somehow we can set ourselves aside. So we're, we're not doing it. But we are doing our best to be supportive of students who might be affected. So just to be clear, if federal immigration officials ask you about a, a student, would you you'd cooperate with them? We do not share information about our students in general, and we would not do it unless uh, federal authority had a warrant or a court order. We are an open campus, so we can't discriminate against federal officials if they chose to come on campus. But... Um, our own public safety folk would not uh, cooperate with an enforcement of an immigration uh, order unless there were a subpoena. Okay, I want to turn to the phones right now. We have a call from, oh, sorry, we lost the call. Um, but, okay, basically, I want to ask another con sort of concerning question about uh, a study that came out last year about young people and the news. Um, I, I think this is probably pretty relevant for college campuses. There was a Stanford study uh, late last year basically saying that, you know, young people, uh, middle school, high school uh, students have a pretty hard time discerning real and fake news. They describe this as dismaying and bleak and a threat to democracy. Uh, what do you find uh, when you have uh, young people come to Dickinson, or, or, and how are you addressing this issue if, if you do feel like it, it is an issue? Yes, I've seen the Stanford study, and it is certainly an issue. Um, it, it, 
addressing that issue is essentially what we do at liberal arts colleges. I know for many the notion of liberal arts seems sort of soft, but in fact it's very hard-nosed. Our goal is to teach our students to be critical thinkers, and that involves being critical about evidence, whether it's research evidence or it's in the news. So, for example, um, every student who comes to Dickinson takes a first-year seminar. That's a small group seminar aimed at uh, introducing students to college-level discourse. A part of that always is addressing the question of what we call information literacy. In other words, how you find good evidence and how you discern between uh, what you would call, I guess, real news and fake news, to use the current terms. Uh, that's a part of what every student does in their first semester. And those seminars, in addition to having a professor, also have a librarian attached to work with students on printed but also electronic media. A lot of our students, in fact, a majority, do research projects. And research is, again, about finding real hard information and discerning what is from what isn't. So we pay a great deal of attention to this. And actually, uh, while uh, the debate nationally about fake news and alternate facts is it's really worrisome, it has the advantage of highlighting that issue. So there are very few students who are unaware that this is a question, and at least that's a good thing. Okay, I want to turn to the phones now. We have Dave on the line from Lewisburg. Uh, Dave, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm curious if you feel like you might be treating the travel ban too lightly and the current administration too lightly. And I'm wondering if you think maybe we shouldn't be at this point encouraging people to come into the country to study universities or whether we should be encouraging, say, Mexico to, on its own unilaterally, step away from NAFTA or if we should be encouraging countries in Europe to unilaterally step away from what really is a fascist structure in our country right now. If you look at Dr. Lawrence Britt's 2003 study of fascism, so this is 13 years ago, he has 14 indicators of fascism, and virtually every one can be applied to the Trump administration. So I'm wondering if maybe we're treating the travel ban and the current environment in the country too lightly, and really if we should should be looking at how we're going to deal with this in a different way than just trying to work around these travel bans or simple executive orders. Or I feel like we may be treating the administration too lightly, and maybe it's time to be looking at doing more significant steps. Okay, thank you, Dave. So I guess, Neil, perhaps the question is really, do you feel like students are un unsafe if, if they're abroad and they want to come to the United States? Should you, you know, be telling them not to come here? Right. Uh, let me limit myself then uh, to that particular question. Right now, we certainly don't feel that students are unsafe coming here. We, uh, we think that it's still a good opportunity although we are monitoring it very closely. More broadly, you know, the suggestion I think that the caller has made is that we should encourage other countries essentially to boycott the United States in terms of uh, the flow of students and scholars. Now, that, that is something that we would oppose. Uh, we think actually 
now is the time for more exchange and more conversation across borders, not less. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking to Dickinson College's interim president, Neil Weissman, about Trump's immigration order and how that affects higher education. And Neil, more broadly, one of the issues that certainly came up quite a bit in the, the election and, and sort of has made a lot of people feel like they're really not getting ahead or living the American dream is just the huge amounts of student debt people accrue going to colleges and universities. I guess how how are you guys thinking about that and trying to address that issue? Well, the student debt issue is really complicated. I, I know that the image, the popular image is that um, you know, students are running up debts of over $100,000 and that most of them can't manage the debts that they have and so on. And I think the reality is more complicated than that. The average student debt is considerably smaller. Uh, most students are, in fact, able to pay back the debts and so on, although there also are many who have been manipulated and have taken on too much debt. Um, I guess the nutshell version of what I've just said is it's complicated. At Dickinson, we do our very best to first address students with grant aid. We do about $48 million worth of financial aid every year. In addition to that, when we have students who are taking on loans for their education, we also try to make sure that they're not excessive. And so, for example, the college's default rate, by that I mean graduates who go out and are unable to make payments on their loan is around 1% or 2%. It's very low. So we watch it carefully. I think in principle, we think it's appropriate for students to have a stake in their own education, and that might include taking loans. On the other hand, as I just said, we try to be very careful that it not become excessive. And I do think that there are abuses out there, particularly in for-profit institutions, and they do need to be addressed. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Marie Cusick, sitting in today for Scott Lamar. Uh, today we're talking with Dickinson College's interim president, Neil Weissman, about Donald Trump's immigration order and what that means for higher education. And Neil, I want to ask you about political polarization, because that's been just such a hot topic this year as well. You know, so many people, they look in their Facebook feed and they're just reinforced with all the, the sort of echo chamber ideas they already have, or they live in a neighborhood uh, filled with other people who think like them. Um, how, how do you handle that on a college campus in, in terms of, I'm sure you have a mixture of, of students from across the political spectrum. How do you keep those conversations civil and make sure people are talking to each other? Well, it's a challenge, although I think college campuses may be the best place for that to happen. I mean, our goal, after all, is exchange of ideas, and we work very hard to make that real. And so I know faculty, for instance, you know, when they're uh, operating in a course, go out of their way to encourage viewing multiple perspectives, taking different looks at issues. We have actually requirements at Dickinson that students take courses that address specifically questions of diverse, diversity, um, questions of globalism, and perspectives outside those that they may bring from their own uh, educations earlier. So uh, we work at it very hard. I think uh, this is also true at a residential college, and so we encourage conversation and debate on campus, not just in the classroom, but also in residence halls. 
the resolution that I mentioned earlier of our college Democrats and Republicans and student Senate and student liberation movement together is an example of the kind of thing that needs to be done to send a message to all the students that uh, we really do want them to think about things from multiple different perspectives. Uh, no one is forced to change their view, but part of the reason you go to college is to have your views challenged, to think them through, and either to adopt new ideas or to find that you really do believe what you came in with. All right, and let's turn to the phones again. We have a call from Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Hi, so I have a question. Uh, you probably don't have many DACA students in your school because it's central Pennsylvania, and the word has gotten out that central Pennsylvania is not friendly uh, to immigrants and especially people that may look like they might be undocumented, and people assume that by how you look. So that means that if a student is uh, from the DACA program and that gets repealed by Trump, there's a possibility that they could then um, start searching for them because now they have all their paperwork, they know where they live, they know where they work, and so you guys at Dickinson would not protect these kids. Is that what you're saying, sir, when you say you're not a sanctuary school? So these kids, more or less, could be pulled out at any time if that law gets repealed, that executive order gets repealed. Yeah, what I would say first is we do actually have very few DACA students, and I won't say how many, and we're not sharing information about them. Um, if, in fact, uh, the DACA program were suspended and um, federal officials came on campus to enforce the law with the appropriate uh, subpoena or court order, we would have no choice but to essentially what we would do is um, allow them to proceed with their lawful action. We would not cooperate with it in the sense that our public safety people would not participate. Neil, I want to ask you about study abroad because I know Dickinson has a pretty robust program. It's something like 60% of your students study abroad. Is that right? Yes. So what? Uh, where do they go? Because I know I did it as a college student. I loved it. I went to Western Europe where a lot of students go. That's pretty much one of the places in the globe that's most like America. But where do your students go and um, what do you think that offers to them? Well, they go uh, all across the globe, actually. As I said, we have 15 centers and some partner programs pretty much around the globe. And it varies in terms of destination. Uh, for a while, a majority of our students who were studying abroad went outside of Europe, which we thought was a good thing. Of late, the, the movement, not just with our students, but nationally, has been back toward Western Europe. And that's all right, too. Uh, in terms of what, what they got from that experience, um, it typically is fairly extraordinary. They are immersed in a different culture, and they come back having uh, acquired uh, very valuable skills in terms of dealing with other people and understanding multiple perspectives. And they also come back having thought through their own values uh, pretty thoroughly. Uh, sometimes they come back uh, with those values reinforced, and in other cases they have you know, new ideas about things. So we find study abroad absolutely transformative. All right, and just finally here, um, you know, what do you think colleges and universities need to be telling uh, their students in this really polarized era uh, with Donald Trump? 
Well, there's a great deal, but I think the the most immediate thing that comes to my mind is they need to understand that the world is a complicated place and that addressing the issues that are in front of them requires not instant snap judgments, but rather deep thinking, consideration of multiple perspectives, and a real search for what's the case and what is not. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Dickinson College Interim President Neil Weissman. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Well, thank you. And thanks to all our guests today. Uh, I'm Marie Cusick. Thanks for joining us on tomorrow's program. Scott Lamar will be back, and we'll have the world-renowned artist Philip Perlstein.